0: Good morning, wherever you are, and welcome to the Book Collector Podcast. This morning's podcast is the article by Donald and Mary Hyde on their collection published by the Book Collector in the issue for Autumn 1955. It is read here by Kate Rooksby.
1: The Library at Four Oaks Farm is an example of mid-20th century book collecting. The first acquisitions were made when the collections of the early part of the century, with a few notable exceptions, had been completed, when book prices had fallen to a new low, when war was raging and when taxes were rising. The library has another important mid-twentieth century aspect, which, though not unique, is a reflection of the period. It is a collection formed by husband and wife. We agree that without giving each other courage, incitement to extravagance and consolation in failure, it would never have existed. Except for occasional Christmas or birthday surprises, no item has been acquired without common consent. We have been aware for some time of a recognizable pattern in the forming of new collections. They are created by individuals who early in life have had a great interest in books, derived from background and inheritance, association, education, and those mysterious personal qualities which no writer on book collecting has ever been able to explain satisfactorily. In some way, collectors have financial resources, often not great, often stemming from a reduction in comfort, but an available something beyond the bare necessities of living. In most cases, new collectors make their first purchases through the influence of a person or an event. Once started, they feel the need for greater knowledge and seek the company of scholars, librarians, dealers and established collectors. They may then own few books, but they are forever committed. In the majority of cases, collectors begin timidly, for they lack experience, and even if they can afford expenditure, they realize self-consciously that their friends and relations do not approve of large amounts squandered on books. In this initial stage, new collectors are prone to make their greatest mistakes, which, sad as these always are, provide basic experience at a crucial time. Another feature of new collectors is that few decide immediately upon a scheme of collecting and this is fortunate as well, for it provides perspective. At the moment when collectors make their choice of specialization, or the reverse, it is a combination of interest and the availability of material within financial reach which determines their course. The Four Oaks Farm Library follows the recognizable pattern. Though it does have some unrecognizable features. Neither of us at a precocious age made an important rare book discovery, nor did we buy the collection's cornerstone during our undergraduate days. Both of us had always loved books, the distaff side concentrating on the theatre, and the other on the solid and then unemphasized eighteenth century. Bookcases from floor to ceiling were an important part of our first house, half a gardener's cottage in Detroit, when we were married in the autumn of 1939. It was not long thereafter that the distaff side returned from a special showing of a visiting New York dealer, now deceased, proudly bearing several purchases. The male side grumbled on the basis of extravagance, without realizing the further complaint that the purchases were second-rate, Some were cripples, and one Elizabethan document was an outright forgery, something Bell Green later recognized at a range of ten feet. We have retained this example from sentiment and to serve as a salutary warning. To continue the story, the bride, with greater knowledge of male psychology than of books, returned to the exhibit and purchased for her husband, run-of-the-mill, first editions of Boswell's Life of Johnson and Johnson's Dictionary. Little did either of us then realize we were launching the project, which was to become one of the happiest features of our lives. We did, however, immediately fancy ourselves as book collectors, and during the next year we surrendered our claims to furniture and chattels in the estate of an uncle and aunt in favor of the library, which contained first editions of the Concord writers and other American authors. We moved to New York on election day of 1940, when Roosevelt was defeating Wilkie. Our collecting instincts were at once whetted by the climate of New York. The Darwin Kingsley sale was soon to take place, and, interested in a fine third folio of Shakespeare, we made ourselves known to David Randall of the Scribner Bookstore, of whom we had heard from our great friend Randolph Adams of the Clements Library. We were encouraged to bid, but had difficulty in understanding the requested 10% commission. If, we thought, a dealer receives 10%, why will he not make every effort to raise the price to obtain more 10%? That naivety has long since passed, though the legal ramifications of responsibility are not solved to date. It is a pity Lord Rothschild's suit was settled before trial as a judicial decision on this point would have been salutary. Be that as it may, we were successful in our bidding and aspired at once to collect other folios of Shakespeare. Randolph Adams visited us about this time and with his usual terseness suggested if we were serious about books we should know what we were doing. He took the matter in hand and within a week Invitations were arriving from a number of book dealers. One day we met Gabriel Wells in the early afternoon. He wished to tell us that the Kingsley First Folio, a copy which left much to be desired, he urged the theory of buying what we could afford, discarding and improving copies as circumstances permitted. In the late afternoon we met Dr Rosenbach. He counselled our buying only the finest or even the purchases were limited to one good book every three years. On this same eventful day, in the evening, we were introduced to Arthur Houghton. He delighted us by showing interest in our collecting activities and said he wished to see our library. This visit took place a few days later, and it was easy to detect his disappointment. He must, however, have seen the recognizable pattern and had hope of progress, for he left us with dozens of suggestions on three-by-five cards. His advice and his friendship have continued through the years. We were indeed following the pattern. We had made mistakes, almost 100% mistakes. Our first purchases were not right. Our inherited books, after a day of inspection by John Fleming, proved to have one volume of value. Far from being discouraged we were determined to go forward. We had no particular plan, except that one wished to pursue the theatre and the other eighteenth century. Both shared the extravagance, and there was equal enjoyment, though the male twitted the female about the increasingly obvious fact that he could buy what he wanted for much less than she could. Then came the A. Edward Newton sale. We were included in many convivial events surrounding it and we met several collectors of whom we had heard and we also met Lionel Robinson who was our first connection with the English book world. At the end of the sale we owned Johnson's early manuscript considerations on the case of Dr. Trapp's sermons the Johnson Dodd manuscripts Johnson's teapot and some Johnson letters and books. How we wish now we had bought all the Johnson items. In retrospect, the next few months were increasingly full of pleasurable associations with bookmen. We did not know then that the appearance of new collectors is a matter of some excitement in this congenial group. Encouragement came from all sides. Our collecting continued in two directions, Elizabethan quarters on the one hand, and the 18th century on the other. From the Rosenbach Company, we acquired various items, including Robert Wilson's The Three Ladies of London, 1592, Thomas Nash's Summer's Last Will and Testament, 1600, and Henry Petow's Eliza's Funeral, 1603, Fielding's unpublished manuscript of Outlawry in Criminal Causes, Boswell's manuscript Boswelliana, the manuscript of Johnson's dedication to Houle's translation of Tasso's Jerusalem Delivered, and Johnson's letter to Lord North, from William H. Robinson Limited, among other things, we acquired the Lester-Harmsworth copy of Shakespeare's Fourth Folio and first editions of Fanny Burney, Fielding, Richardson, Smollett, and Pope. We tried and often succeeded in diminishing the 18th century stock of various other dealers in this country and in England. By the time of the third part of the Newton sale in October 1941, we were sufficiently enthused to give a tea to honor our ownership of the teapot. Our servants, more numerous then than now, were persuaded to wear 18th century costumes. They later complained that the guests had not come similarly attired. For the first time in some years, tea poured from Dr. Johnson's pot. It was a gay occasion. These pleasant days were not to last, for in December came Pearl Harbor, and the 18th century enthusiasts entered the Navy. During the war period, the book world, for the most part, was far from our thoughts. One cheerful exception was a dinner in Washington shortly before Christmas in 1943, with Boys, Penrose and Eric Sexton, both in uniform. At the conclusion of the evening, there was a Christmas present for the Elizabethan collector, a first enticement out of her field, Mrs. Piozzi's manuscript journal of her tour through Wales, a Newton item which Eric Sexton had decided to sell. A short while before the naval interlude, we had met Ralph Isham. Our acquaintance quickly developed, under the warmth of his personality, into a deep friendship. During the war, our meetings were spasmodic, but there was a common appreciation. That story is too long to tell here, but it remains one of the bright spots of our lives, and we hope it did in his. Through a remarkable unity of interest, Ralph Isham's desire to assist in the building of our collection and our desire to assist him with this new and never-ending problems connected with the Boswell papers we acquired such important manuscripts as Boswell's Book of Company, his Letter to the People of Scotland, 1785, and his transcripts of entries from two Johnson diaries, also Johnson manuscripts, including the Anna annals: the 1729-1734 diary, the 1764-1784 diary, which contained Agri Ephemeris, Johnson's translation of Sallus Cataline, his drafts of London and The Vanity of Human Wishes, and 119 Johnson letters. Surprisingly, perhaps, even then, our direction was unclear. During the three years after the war, while we were enthusiastically acquiring all the 18th century material we could. The Elizabethans were not neglected. In fact, we bought one of our finest quarters at that time, the 1611 Hamlet. In bulk, too, the largest number of books on the Elizabethan period came to Four Oaks Farm when the distaff side was unable to resist acquiring Professor Tucker Brooks' Working Library, a collection which totaled some 4,000 volumes. Another item of this period of the library combined Shakespeare and 18th century interest, a manuscript volume of William Ireland's Confessions. We have later added manuscripts of this youthful forger, scenes from Hamlet and the plays of Vortigern and Wowina, Henry II and King Lear, which had once moved Boswell so that he knelt down and kissed its pages. We were realizing rapidly that we faced a major decision. We felt it was no longer possible to form an outstanding Elizabethan library, too much material having been acquired already by institutions and the few things which remained being beyond our means. We were also discouraged about the future of a Johnson collection. We had been forewarned by an eminent librarian and scholar that it was a field in which nothing of the first order could be accomplished we had bought heavily at auction and for many book dealers but these sources were becoming exhausted there were no further possibilities from the boswell paper we felt we had made great progress as we had more johnson material than newton had ever owned and we had almost as many manuscripts and letters as two generations of the adam family had acquired our collection competed with adam but the warming had been correct. We were not preeminent. It seems unbelievable, but at this time, the event in the book collector's progress took place. Intense activity developed in the Adam collection. For some years, it had been deposited in the University of Rochester Library, but now the Adam heirs were eager to conclude its disposition. Interest was aroused in many quarters and there were several formidable prospective purchases. We were squarely faced with the issue whether to remain a new competing collection or to seize what was probably the last opportunity, at least as far as private individuals were concerned, for creating a remarkable combination of strength. Could we afford to take such a step or would we be remiss in not taking it? On a long drive to spend a weekend with friends at the seaside, we discussed the matter. The visit was a gay and frothy one, and it in itself determined us. On the drive home, in a matter of moments, we abandoned gladly the thought of such luxuries and spent the remaining hours planning ways and means for acquiring the Adam collection. We had met Robert Adam of the third generation and with him had visited the University of Rochester library. Long sympathetic talks with him followed. This too is a separate story. There were negotiations concluded by our offer. There was a day of waiting, then a telephone call from Buffalo. You have bought the Adam collection on one condition. We waited breathlessly. That my wife and I can come to spend a weekend. And thus, the Dr. Johnson of many catalogues and auctions and part of the collections of Newton, Isham, and all of Adam have come together. The manuscripts and books are now housed in a room we added in 1949. Much of our material is known and has been described in the Adam. Fettercairn and Newton catalogues. A large part has been put through the auction rooms on one or more occasions and a major portion has appeared in catalogues of book dealers. Very little has come from discoveries in country houses, attics and basements. The notable exception is, of course, the Johnson and Boswell manuscript material acquired from Malahide and Fettercairn by way of Ralph Isham. One of the interesting results of our collecting has been watching items come together and fit into place. We have well over a third of the letters of Johnson known to survive. They include his earliest letter, the only known letter to his wife, his two last letters in the breakup of his friendship with Mrs. Thrale Piozzi, also two of her related letters, her last, is it the... Ryland's library, and Johnson's famous letter to Macpherson. The only known manuscript page of the dictionary is here, together with the first and second drafts of the plan. There are many of his surviving diaries, many of his poems, his two surviving dedications, and a number of miscellaneous manuscripts we do not believe it is extravagant to claim more manuscript material of Johnson in one place than at any time since his death. There are sentimental items, the proof sheets of the life of Pope given to Fanny Burney, one of the volumes annotated by Johnson for use in his dictionary, and his last signature affixed to a pension warrant on the day of his death. There are a number of presentation copies of his books and volumes from his library, papers executed for the Thrale family and as executor of Mr. Thrale's estate. There is in manuscript all he did attempting to save the unfortunate Dr. Dodd, which has demanded a separate collection of Dodd material. There are, of course, many fine editions of Johnson's various publications, including several of the rarer ones. There is much of Boswell, though not comparable with the Yale collection, much of Mrs. Piozzi, though not comparable with the Rylands Library holdings, and many 18th century authors are well represented. There is one side of a book collector which he hates to admit. He is unable to resist buying some items which have no place at all in his collection. A single collector may derive pleasure from private guilt, but we wonder if there is not duplicity in joint guilt. We can explain a respectable fielding collection, containing first editions of most of his plays and rarities such as Uncut History of the Present Rebellion in Scotland, 1745, and Ovid's Art in Love, Paraphrased and Adapted to the Present Time, 1747, With the cancelled leaf, for both these titles, the cross-biography records no copy known. But how can we explain Napoleon Manuscripts and Relics, a collection formed by Napoleon's chaplain at St. Helena, l'Abbé Vignali? Where does George Bernard Shaw's copy of Ellen Terry's autobiography with his witty annotations fit in? How can we account for the sentimental item of Rosetting's drawing of Tennyson reading Maud at the Brownings with Elizabeth Barrett Browning's letter describing the evening? And what about Sir Walter Scott's letter refusing the laureateship and recommending Southey? And Antony Trollope's letter of proposal to Miss Dorothea Sankey while Mrs. Trollope was still living? And all the known letters from Oscar Wilde to Reginald Turner. The only excuse we can imagine for such items being in our library is that some visitors manifest no interest in Johnson but are given pleasure by these other attractions. The Four Oaks Farm Library exemplifies the recognisable pattern of book collecting. We continue to acquire what we can of available material though competitors and prices often defeat us. We have, however added 32 Johnson letters within the past three years, and among the most recent purchases are William Temple's Diaries, 1780 to 1796, and Lord Chesterfield's copy of Johnson's Dictionary. Our primary concern is the Library's importance to scholarship, and we hope that this will become increasingly evident in the future. Emotionally, What the library means to us is a record of friendships, only a few of which have been mentioned in this account. Even more personally, it is the greatest and growing pleasure of two people.
0: That was read by Kate Rooksby. Mary Hyde, who later remarried and wrote under the name of Mary Hyde Eccles, was a legendary figure in the world of books. In addition to her Johnson collection, she put together an Oscar Wilde collection now in the British Library. This has been described by John Stokes in The Book Collector for Spring 2019. Her obituary by Nicholas Barker is also one of our podcasts. In order to read a sample issue or to see our subscription rates, please go to www.thebookcollector.co.uk. Thank you.